Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Josh, and I'm the pastor for children and students here. And it's my privilege to bring God's word. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17, and we'll go through chapter 3, verse 6. If you want to use the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 802. So page 802 in the Pew Bible, and that's Malachi 2.17. If you would, bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather around your word. Would you use it to shape us and mold us into a people after your son's image? That we might look like Jesus. We ask that you would use this time now to, uh, to purify us, to make us a holy people for you. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, injustice is in the news a lot these days, especially on social media. And probably uh, racial injustice is something you will see a whole lot about. And that's something that should anger us, that we as Christians should even hate all forms of injustice. And we especially hate it when injustice is done to us. When we feel like we get the short end of the stick or that someone has it out for us. And perhaps as parents, there's nothing that angers you more than to see your children be the ones who experience injustice, whether it's with their friends or in the school but we hate it. And all those are examples of people versus people injustice. But what about divine injustice? Is it even possible that God could be unjust? And some of you probably who have been in the church for a long time, your automatic reaction is, of course not. God can't be unjust. But do you ever question God's character? when it seems like the wicked have it better than you do? Or do you you ever accuse God of being unjust when you struggle with infertility and you see others have no problems getting pregnant? Do you allow bitterness to creep into your heart accusing God and drawing into question his character and his faithfulness to you? That's exactly what we see in our passage today. We see that Israel is questioning God's character. And they're questioning his faithfulness to the covenant he's made with them. Right now, uh, Israel is probably about 50,000 people, which is a far cry from what they were hundreds of years before when God's leading them out of Egypt in the Exodus, right? They're a million plus strong And so they have times of remembrance where they're thinking, man, things used to be a lot better. It's really difficult right now. And they're this little insignificant province in Persia under Persian rule. And so they're allowing their circumstances to interpret and to color the way that they view God. And with this in mind, it's it's no shock that they are accusing God of being unjust. Read with me. Verse 17 in chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, 
and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? I don't know if you picked it up in that, but what happened here was that they didn't just accuse God of not seeing evil as if he couldn't know what's going on, but it's probably even a greater slap in the face where he's, they say, you see evil, and not only do you not do anything about it, but you actually delight in those who do evil. That's bold. They're accusing God of delighting in those who do evil. And one commentator says, Judah, unable to see its own corruption, saw its current circumstances, their troubles as a sign of God's unfairness or unfaithfulness. They deserved divine blessings, so they thought, but were receiving divine afflictions instead, ignoring their own sins and aggravated by the sins of others. They were complaining of divine injustice. So they're complaining. It even says that they have wearied God with their complaining, this constant unbelief. And we'll see in just a second, verses 1 through 6, we'll see these three things. The first thing we'll see is that Jesus is coming. Then we'll see that Jesus comes to purify. And we'll also see that Jesus comes to judge. So if you would read with me, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the rest of this passage. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner, and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So we see that God's responding to, him, to them and he says, Jesus is coming. Right? We see three different people in view here, just in verse one alone. The first one's pretty easy. That is, God, this Lord of hosts. So think God the Father here. But then there's these two other people in view. One is my messenger. So the question we, when we see that is, who is this messenger? So if you would do me a favor, flip over maybe just one page in your Bible to chapter 4. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So we see that there's this messenger who's coming, who's this Elijah-type figure. And then if we were to go over to the New Testament, we'd see in Luke chapter 1, 
verses 16 and 17. And he will turn away, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then you also heard what Craig read, and that was that this Elijah-type figure, that it's John the Baptist, verses 13 and 14, said, Who will prepare the way before you? For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So we see that this Elijah-type figure that's called my messenger here, it's John the Baptist. He's the one who's coming to prepare the way for the Lord. Make way, make ready this way for the Lord. And he came preaching repentance and faith. But then we also see this third figure, this my messenger of the covenant. So we, we kind of have a couple of options here. We could say, well, maybe this is just giving us more information about this first messenger, that is John the Baptist. Maybe this is this messenger of the covenant, or this has to be someone else. Read with me there in verse 1. It says, The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. So this person that's coming, this messenger that's coming, is, it's, he's coming and he's coming to his temple. So who did the temple belong to? It wasn't a mere man, right? It was God himself. So God is coming. This messenger of the covenant is God himself who's coming. But then it also says, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's not just a mere man that's coming, but it's also someone other than the Lord of hosts, right? It says he, third person, someone else is coming. Who is that? It's the son of God himself, Jesus Christ. That's who's coming. This, my messenger of the covenant, is who is coming. And it's a promise. He is coming. He's not just the messenger that's going to bring a good message, but God himself is coming. It's a promise to the people of God. And we see in Matthew 25, we see this story of the ten virgins who were have their lamps ready, their oil lamps, and they're waiting for their bridegroom, for the bridegroom to come. What happens? He's delayed in coming. There were five who were ready. They had extra oil. They were prepared for this coming of the groom. And they were going to, uh, the intent was for them to be able to accompany him to go meet the bride. These five were ready, even with the delay. In Malachi's time, these people are wearied by the evil going on. They're wearied because the Lord is slow to execute justice, or at least in their perception, he's slow to bring about justice. He's slow to come. So the question is, are you ready for the the Lord's coming? Are Are you wearied by living this life today? Do you feel like there's evil coming against you that you just want to be let out of? I want to tell you, it's a promise that Jesus Christ is coming. 
So the call for us today is to repent of sin today, to turn from sin and to turn our eyes to him because Jesus is coming. But his coming might not be as comfortable as we expect it to be. And so we see in verses two through four, Jesus comes to purify. Would you read with me again, beginning in two? But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Oftentimes when the prophets are writing, they, they look forward to this coming of the Messiah. And it's kind of like this, right? If you're standing straight in front of me, you probably see just one hand. But if you see the side view, you see that there's, there's two hands, And there's this gap, right? It's similar with the coming of Christ. We see this coming, the prophets see this coming of Christ as a future event. His first advent when Christ came. We even read, Stephen uh, read responsibly with us this morning about Christ humbling himself. Coming and dying on the cross and being raised to life. We have this first advent of Christ. And so from the perspective of Malachi, there's this, this coming But we know now that there is also a future second coming of Christ. That's what we look forward to when this refiner's fire will fully take place. And the intent is that we would be refined. God's people would be refined and purified. That this happens from within. Right? That this happens because God wants his people to be holy. But notice it's a refiner's fire. It's not a forest fire that comes to destroy everything in its, in its way. God doesn't come destroying houses like a, fire, a forest fire. He doesn't come destroying habitats. And you may even be familiar with the fires and forest fires in California. They happen typically in, in September, October, because 91% of the rainfall in California happens between November and April. So all summer long, there's very little to no rain. And so these, the, the fire, the forest, it's drying out. It's almost like this kindling just ready to be set ablaze. And then with this dryness comes this great potential for destruction and fire comes. This is not how God is with his people. He's like a refiner. He comes to purify, not destroy. He comes to make perfect his people. He comes here in Malachi to refine them and to purge them of greed and marital infidelity and selfishness. Perhaps he does the same with us as well. J.I. Packer says this, God seeks the fellowship of his people and will send both joy and And sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and to attach those hands to himself. Right? God will send both joy that we might shout the glory of God from the mountaintops, but he may also take us 
through sorrow, through the valley of death, that we might cling to his rod and his staff, for they comfort us. This is our God. It is for our good that he comes to refine his people. And so that even brings up the question, who is it that he refines? And here in the passage, it says the sons of Levi, that is Judah, Jerusalem. It's his covenant people. God refines his people who come to him by faith. So if you're in this family of God, you can know that God's work in you is more like a refiner's fire. He's working to purify you because he wants to, to, like this artisan before the fire and the gold, the fire heats up the gold, that the impurities may come to the top and be skimmed off and heated up again and the impurities and the dross come back to the top and it's skimmed off again until finally this artisan looks and he can see this metal is so pure that like, he can almost see his own image. God does the same thing with his people, that he might refine you, that he might see his image in his children. So this is a good thing. It's a good thing that God is committed to your holiness. Philippians 1.6, you probably know it. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. But do you know when he brings it to completion? The last part of that verse tells us, Philippians 1, 6 says, it's at the day of Jesus Christ. So God's working in you, working in your life, bringing about circumstances in your life that he might refine you. That is, do this good work of salvation through Christ. So he's working in his people, not just to, to purify them, make them cleaned up on the outside, but just like a refiner's fire, purifying the metal, the gold and silver from the inside. Imagine that. That's God's goodness to you, right? That, that one day the sin struggles that you have, one day will be done away with. Pride, greed, selfishness, lust, you name whatever it is. God's refining work in your life, the fire of life, the various trials you and I go through, it's that he might refine you, that he might purify you because he's committed to your holiness. And it's no more possible to go through, it's no more possible to become pure without pain than it is to be burned without pain. So all of us want the end result, right? We want to be this pure, holy, set-apart people for God. But we really just want to skip over all the stuff in between and just God make us instantly one day this pure and holy people. Perhaps when our hearts long for that, we miss out on God's work and refinement because we try to escape the difficulty. God uses life to work out the dross of sin in us. He purifies his people. But then even notice in verse 4 that, that God purifies so that he might delight in his children. Verse 4 says, They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. So what happened first is God purifies his people. And then the result is that he delights in them. 
So God's purifying work happens first. It's not you bring good offerings and God accepts you and he's pleased. But God purifies and works that then his people might worship him rightly. That he might be pleased with them. And isn't that what we want to hear from our Father? Wouldn't it make going through all the purifying, refining fire in life worth it all to hear God say one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. That God might be pleased in you as you go through this refining fire. I think it would make it all worth it if we would keep our eyes set on God's pleasure with us. So Jesus comes and he's coming to purify, but he also comes to judge. Read with me verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So Jesus comes to judge. And we even see here that he's going to be this swift judge who comes with a great swift witness. In the Old and New Testament, there are multiple times where to bring a charge against someone, you need two or three witnesses to corroborate that charge. It doesn't say we need that here. It's just one person's witness. Jesus comes. God in his, his witness is sure and it's reliable. There's no questioning whether he sees things for the, what they truly are. And so this is a swift, no hesitation judgment when Christ will come again. But then the question is, well, who will be judged? And it gives us a list of six things. It says the sorcerers, idolaters, liars, those who oppress, and those who don't care for the needy. And then there's this kind of summary statement, this catch-all, right at the very end there. It says, and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That includes the brash atheist at your work. That includes the calloused, unrepentant sinner. And that is everyone who does not bow a knee to King Jesus. Could be a neighbor. Could be someone in your family. But everyone who does not fear the Lord will experience this judgment when Jesus comes. Just like in the parables when Jesus says to his disciples uh, that this farmer will have to gather the wheat and with it at the same time they'll gather the weeds and the two will be separated at the harvest. And what happens? The wheat is refined, it's kept, it's separated, and the weeds are thrown out, they're burned. There will be judgment for those who do not belong to Christ. So the question then I think we have to ask is, how do you avoid judgment? Right? We have these two different groups. There's one group that experiences the refining fire. And then there's another group that experiences this judgment. What's different about them? Before I say that, I want to say what's similar. What's similar is that they both are sinful. Right? The, the, those who experience this refining fire of Christ... 
They're sinful. That's why Christ comes to refine his people. But then we also have these adulterers, sorcerers, and the rest of the list. Everyone who does not fear God. They too are sinful. So how do you get to be this one who is in the camp of being refined by God instead of being judged by Christ? I think it falls on that last phrase. Those who do not fear God. So the question is, do you fear God? Do you look to God and you have a great respect and honor for him because you see who you are in light of who he is, your perfect creator, the one who has made you. But yet you, sinful, rebelling against God. Do you see your need for him? Do you come to bow a knee because you revere and hold him in high honor? You have a great need for Christ. And so it is, it is this that we all need to be reminded of. That we might believe in him. That we might, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, we might be spared judgment and receive the refining work of Christ. So Jesus is coming. He's coming to purify, but he's coming to judge. And we see this next last verse, sorry, verse uh, 3-6. Let me read that to you again. For, the, for I, the Lord, do not change. I want to stop just right there real quick. Theologians will call this the immutability of God. Right, so that's a, a word most of us don't use. Um, if you're in my generation, maybe uh, younger too, you've heard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? That is, there were these little turtles and something happened and they mutated, right? They changed. Now they're these ninja fighting, evil destroying turtles. But they've changed. This is not our God. Nothing changes him and he never changes for the better. He never changes for the worse because he's always been perfect. He's always been loving. He's always been just. And because of that, you, O oh children of Jacob, are not consumed. You, the people of God, he saw you at your worst. Think Romans 5, 8. But God, in his love, de demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for what? Not those who are perfect, not those who are good and, and really well put together, but he died for sinners. And then two verses later in chapter five, it says that we were once enemies of God. So he looks at you, at your worst. He comes to you at your worst and says, I want to be a refiner's fire to you instead of your judge. Bow a knee to King Jesus and fear me. This is our God. And because of that, we do not need to fear being consumed. And this refining fire is the result of his love for his children. The refining fire is not a result of his wrath. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 tells us something very similar. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Then later on in verse 8, it says, If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So God's refining work, his discipline in you, that he might work out the dross of sin out of your heart, is a result of you being his child. So there's good news for you, right? You're God, committed to your holiness, says, I love you so much. I want to work in you that I might refine you. That through various trials that James chapter 1 refers to, that it could be work, it could be family, it could be health. He does all of these things in his children to purify, to refine. He does this through his church as we grow in our knowledge of one another, whether it's community groups or you know someone through Sunday school or you see them at church and you spend time with them. As a brother and sister, rebuke us in Christ. Receive that as God's refining work in your life. It also happens through the preaching of God's word, perhaps today or in past Sundays when the preaching of God's word comes upon your heart and convicts you. That's God's refining work in your life. And so when life, this fiery furnace, feels like the, the coals are just being heaped upon your head, don't, don't let that cause you, you and your eyes to be turned inward. Let that push your eyes towards Christ. Charles Spurgeon would say this, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be confused. If you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. So in your difficulty, even if you can't trace the steps, the path of his hand, trust the heart of God. That you might lean upon him, believing that Christ is coming and that you'd be quick to repent, that God's refining work in your life would soften you. That it would work out the sin in your life because that is a good thing for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We ask that you would that you would use your word to refine us, that you would use this church, help us to grow in our knowing one another, help us to be a faith family who, who is not afraid to, to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ who perhaps is not believing something or not living rightly, but not because we want to point a finger, but because we want you to do a good work that you might refine your people. That Hamilton Baptist Church might look more like the image of Christ as we display Christ to the world, as we declare Christ to our neighbors and in the workplace. Would you help us? Help us to receive your refining work in our lives as a good thing that it wouldn't harden and callous us, but that we would see that your good work is a result of, or, or the result of your good work is that we would be a holy people for you, set apart for you, our King. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.